Welcome back to the Reading and Writing Podcast. My guest today is Aidan Truen, author of the new crime novel, Seven Demons. Truen is also the author of the previous novel, The Price You Pay. And now we can reveal that Aidan Truen is a pseudonym for the author, Nick Harkaway. Nick, welcome to the podcast. Hello. Well, if someone hasn't yet heard about your new novel, Seven Demons, yet, how would you describe the novel? Uh, this, uh, the Jack Price stories are a kind of wild ride crime story where I, I, I sort of worry less and just do more. Um, and so the, the Seven Demons is a, is a heist story. It's set in Switzerland. The characters are, are robbing the most secure bank in the world. And as you would imagine, because it's a kind of story of mayhem, everything goes wrong. <laughs> well, do you remember the original idea or impetus that led you to writing Seven Demons? Well, my uh, my problem was the same as as Jack Price's problem at the beginning of the book. Uh, he's got on hand a bunch of uh, highly talented international crooks and nothing to do with them. And I had the same thing, right? I'm sitting down with the book. This is kind of picking up from where we left off with the first one. And I've got this skilled team of terrifying lunatics, and, and they have nothing to do. They have no enemies left. And so what do you do? You know, well, you know, actually, if you're going to reestablish, it's kind of a management problem. You've got to reestablish the brand. So what are they going to do? They're going to take a contract, and they're going to execute it perfectly. And everyone's going to go, wow, you know, those guys are really good. Um, and uh, they're going to do that all with the minimum of fuss, because the last thing that's happened has just been this huge explosion of, of fire and, and publicity and so on. And this is going to be, they're going to demonstrate how professional they are. Everything's going to settle down back into a kind of normal, even steady flow of the world. Everybody else gets on with their lives. They get on with committing international crimes and everyone's happy, right? I mean, like how, what could possibly go wrong? Um, and of course, as I say, the answer is pretty much everything. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, I just sat down. I was like, okay, well, what's, you know, if you were trying to reassure people that you were still the best kind of criminal syndicate for hire in the world, what kind of what, what kind of thing would you do? And like, well, you rob a bank because it's a classic and you've got to respect your classics. That's great. Well, I'm curious, why did you decide to write The Price You Pay under a pen name? Did, did the writing feel differently versus a Nick Harkaway novel? It did. Uh, that wasn't. I mean, so there was a practical reason. I, let me give you the sequence of events. Because so I'd just written a book called Nomon, which was a great big uh, philosophical, speculative, literary novel uh, about banking and alchemy and uh, surveillance and identity. I mean, it's this huge thing with seven kind of central characters revolving around one another and they're all unreliable narrators. And the whole thing took me years and I put the final, and I, and I wanted it to be a warning, right? Cause it was 20, uh, 2016. I started writing in 2014, it's 2016. And I realized that, you know, I, I had come to the conclusion that there was a dangerous thread of, of kind of angry neo-fascism floating around in the world. And I wanted to warn everybody about that. I put, I, I finished the book uh, the UK immediately voted for Brexit, uh, and things got worse from there. And I was just going nuts. I just couldn't believe it. I was like, w when I started writing this book, I, you know, it was supposed to be a warning. I took too long over it. And obviously, if I'd just written it faster and it had been published, none of these terrible things would have happened. Everything that's gone wrong with the world is all my fault. Uh, and real kind of that, that weird combination of, of hubris and narcissism and guilt that writers subject themselves to. And so I was just in a hole of horror. And I sat down at my computer one morning and I just started writing and I started writing and I didn't get up from 
the computer until kind of 9.30 at night and I had however many thousand words of the price you pay, this story about a guy who's doing a perfectly ordinary, sensible, white-collar cocaine business and then he finds out that for just no reason at all, the seven worst people in the world have been hired to come and kill him. And, uh, and his reaction to this is, this is the best day of my life. Because now that that's happened, he doesn't have to be this kind of well-behaved, under-the-radar guy anymore. You know, the rules of engagement have changed. The rules of his life, the rules we all live by, that you know, they're tacit, they're internalized. You know that you're kind of, you know, when you queue up and get coffee, if someone steps on your toe, you're not immediately going to put them through a plate glass window, right? Because no one does that. In the movies, people do that. You know, but, but I mean, so... But the majority of people do not respond that way. They don't escalate that much. But in this guy's situation, suddenly, that is the only legitimate way to behave. He has to escalate massively and ridiculously in order to stand a chance. And so he's just like, this is the best thing ever. And so I had a great deal of fun writing this book. And I was, it was therapy, right? I mean, it was just, it was just <laughs> way cheaper than, you know, any, any of the other ways you might make yourself feel better about the fact that the way you understand the world turns out to be completely wrong. Um, and so, uh, and that was great. And I had a terrific time. And then I got to the end and I said to my agent, okay, here's what I'm going to do. I've written this book and there's, there's a character in Nomon called Diana Hunter, who is a novelist. And she writes these weird kind of pulpy yet somehow also philosophical thrillers. And they're kind of weird. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to put the title of one of those on this book. I'm going to call it Mr. Murder Investigates. I'm going to publish it as Diana Hunter. I'm just going to put it out on the internet and, um, you know, and everyone can have it free. And then when they read Nomon, they're going to go, oh, wow, there really is a Diana Hunter. How weird is that? Because Nomon is a reality jamming thing. And so first of all, I was convinced that everyone would Google the names of all the characters in Nomon, right? Which is nonsense. But anyway, um, and my agent was just like, Nick, just stop. You've written a novel. It's great. Let's, let's try, and I know this is revolutionary, let's try taking it to a publisher and see whether your publisher wants to publish this as another book. And, you know, uh, it turned out that, that uh, Knopf absolutely were game for that. Um, my UK publisher wasn't sure. They, did, they, they had a problem, so we actually ended up going somewhere else. Um, but what nobody wanted was for me to have no more on the price you pay out as Nick Harkaway books pretty much simultaneously. So what we did was I said, okay, and I anagrammatized Diana Hunter's name, and you get Aidan Truen. <laughs> uh, so, so, so I mean, you know, and then that now nobody can remember who it was who insisted on doing that. You know, my my editor here in the UK at the time, uh, I think it was him. Uh, uh, Edward Kastenmeier says it was definitely me. I think you know, I mean, and just round and round we go, and you know, everybody's convinced it was someone else. And so then um, now I'm just like, okay, it's me. Let's all have some fun now. <laughs> you know, kind of, it's just, you know. <laughs> Uh, we can we can all talk about this, and it's you know it's kind of more fun to to be talking about pseudonyms and dual identities and so on than it is to be kind of creeping around. Because the other thing is, it's really difficult doing book events uh, trying to c conceal your identity, right? So I did some book <laughs> events as Aidan True, and and I was wearing a full face mask, like a one of those ones you would wear for a green screen, um, so over my eyes and everything. Um, and I am here to tell you that is a terrible way to try to read from a book in the normal lighting of a bookshop. It is a terrible, terrible thing. It was just a disaster zone, but it was great fun. I had all these funny voices I did for Aiden and I, you know, I had disguises and obviously it was a big game and everybody knew it was a game and, you know, that was, that was part of the fun. Um, but it was actually a massive outlay of energy as well. And it's just an enormous relief, you know, to kind of just say, Hey, it's me. And yes, you know, I did this crazy thing.
So I'm curious, are you are you working on another Nick Harkaway novel that looks beyond Brexit and, and the, storm, <laughs> the, the storming of the U.S. Capitol? <laughs> I actually I have actually just sold a new novel. Uh, so we'll we'll kind of uh, we'll get into that um, when, when, you know, kind of it's, it's literally just we haven't even inked it yet. Um, gotcha. uh, but but yeah, so there is one. Um uh, and I actually, I have another one in my back pocket, which I was writing. I feel in my kind of Nick Harkaway hat, I, I tend to deal with kind of big themes and concepts and so on. And I feel, um, I can't, I can't do dystopian stuff anymore. I just feel like the world is genuinely too much in that place. Uh, you know, I mean, maybe dystopia is actually too mild a word for where we are. <laughs> and so, uh, I, I was writing, I, I wrote a book, which, which I still have to kind of finish editing, um, which is about, finding the green shoots of a good tomorrow in the rubble of today, uh, just as the horrible consequences that we're living through of various things that, you know, were present uh, embryonically or in seed, you know, kind of, uh, you know, uh, two, three decades ago, and then they grew up through the cracks in what we thought was a solid foundation, you know, so, so the, the good stuff must be waiting there. And if we, if we find it, locate it preserve it nurture it we might get a good future out of the world yet out of ourselves so that was that book is, is partly about that and i i need to get back to it but i also i have this year i just have an insane amount on my plate i'm, I'm loving every second of it but i have a lot to do so that particular book is is somewhere down around priority number four <laughs> that's great well we'll look for that so uh your novel is being published by the vintage crime black lizard publishing yes. i was wondering if you're familiar with the history of black lizard and vintage crime i am and i'm a little bit i'm a little bit obsessed with them actually i have first of all <laughs> uh, we're kind of going backwards um i had i got no i think they sent it to me knopf sent me or my editor knopf sent me the um uh one of the black lizard sort of compendium volumes uh the book of villains um, with, which is a collection of, of shorts and so on about about villains, and I absolutely loved it. And I love I love all those those kind of pulpy uh, short stories and so on. And I'm slightly obsessed with Walter B. Gibson, um, who wrote a <laughs> bunch of those stories because I'm just incredibly the output is so phenomenal, right? These guys were writing yeah. one to two million words a year, and there's a sort of I don't I mean you probably know this story, and you, you can tell me whether it's true or not. There's a story that that uh, Walter B. Gibson and Raymond Chandler had a kind of dialogue going on. And Chandler, in his kind of in his sort of pulpier phase, was, was complaining to Gibson, "I don't make any money. You know, how do you guys make money like this? I'm not making any money." And Gibson's like, "Well, I can tell you what you're doing wrong right now. You're editing these stories. I, I can read your stories, and you're kind of, you know, you are getting paid by the word, but you're spending, you know, days and days and days on making every single sentence right. That's not this gig. That's a different gig. And you've got to go out there and not edit the stories and just get paid by the word." And uh, if you figure it, I mean, you know, wow, if, if uh, Walter V. Gibson was getting paid by the word, he wrote a lot of words every year. <laughs> he was doing it okay. Um, uh, but Chandler, I think in the end, as far as I know, he, he kind of couldn't bring himself to do that. So he ended up going off and, uh, and writing screenplays instead as a steady source of income. So I'm curious, what was your writing journey that led you to writing and getting your first novel published? Oh, wow. Um, so uh, I come from a writing family, right? So my dad was John Le Carre. He died in um, December last year. 
Uh, and so I, uh, I always knew that writing was a thing you could do. Like I saw what it looked like to do it and to have completed mm-hmm. a book. Um, and, and the first thing that I said to myself was, okay, well, I'm not going to do that. Um, and so I went, uh, when I went to university, I, I, I did a politics degree and I had my eye on, uh, when I was in my kind of third year at university, I had my eye on either doing, uh, kind of global security with a focus on Eastern Europe or on environmental law. And, uh, that was where I was headed. And then I got to the end of my university degree and I was, I cannot sit in a classroom for another two years. I just, I can't do it. Um, so I went and got a job in the movie industry. I was a runner on a bunch of movies, kind of, you know, 16 hour, 18 hour days, uh, running around making coffee for everybody and just screwing up egregiously. And I have no <laughs> idea why they didn't fire me, except that I think that's what runners do. I think they're there to screw up egregiously. Um, and, uh, so yeah, so I did that. And then at some time I started writing film scripts because I, I just, I sort of, I thought, well, okay. You know, I do want to tell stories, but if I write film scripts, then I don't have to compare myself with my dad because that's kind of futile. So, you know, maybe if I write film scripts, that would be different. And I did that for a while. And for the better part of a decade, I was an unproduced screenwriter in London. Uh, And then in 2005, I was getting married. And I was like, I cannot be this stereotype guy sitting in an attic in Northwest London writing screenplays and getting paid, but not getting produced. That is just too terrifying. I can't live through that. (laughs) My wife has an actual job, you know, um, at the time she was a, she was an intellectual property lawyer. She's now a CEO in charity in the charitable sector. She's kind of enormously brilliant. I was like, okay, well, that's just, you know, I just, I can't, I can't make her look bad. So uh, I'm going to write a book. And if I write a book, and that works, then that's great. If I write a book and it doesn't work, then I'll go back to school and I'll do those two years of of uh, sitting in the classroom and I'll do one of those two things that I talked about. Uh, and so, I mean, you know, however you want to spin it, either to the good fortune or the ill fortune of the world, the book worked. <laughs> that was the gone away world. And uh, people liked it. And, uh, you know, and so then here I am. You know, it's just been a kind of, well, broadly speaking, a straight line from there. That's great. I'm curious, and I'm sure that you've been asked this before. I'm curious about writing in the shadow of your father. And and as you may be aware, uh, two of Stephen King's sons are, or or I'd say both of his sons are writers. So, I mean, it's not unheard of. I'm just curious, do you, do you just kind of put that out of your mind when you're sitting down at the keyboard? It doesn't even really come into my mind. It's, it's not, I definitely haven't got my father's ghost sitting on my elbow kind of going, oh, mm-hmm. I don't think I like, I don't think I like that. Actually, that would be great. <laughs> I would love that. If I just kind of, if I could sit down, I'm going to put a chair on my left the next time I sit down <laughs> and see whether I can get that to happen. Um, no, I, I, actually it's, it's kind of, it's weirdly, uh, it's easier than that. And it's more difficult than that. It's easier than that because so much, I, I, I think so many of the barriers that people find to writing are about process and about, you know, kind of, they feel there's so, so much mythology around writing. Like it should flow from you naturally. It's your own inner voice. You know, it's not like work. It's, it's, it's like floating. Um, you know, <laughs> uh, all of these things are untrue. Um, you know, and, and then just kind of, I have watched one of the, you know, kind of one of the most renowned writers in the world struggle with a manuscript. I have seen him, hate what he's writing i've seen him tear things up and throw them away i've seen him come down 
go for a grumpy walk with the dog. I have seen him sit there and say to me, but really essentially to himself, you turn up every day, you write, you get to the end, and then you edit, and then you see what you've got. You know, it's, it's a stamina game. It's always a stamina game. It's not, you know, it isn't something that you just kind of float through and come out the other end and you're wearing kind of hat with a flower on it. You know, it's, <laughs> it's, um, you know, it's, it's a grind. And when you know that, but you know that if you show up, you will finish, you know, that's a huge advantage. It's just, you know, to having seen that process and so on. So I have that. We never really talked directly about technique very much or about, mm-hmm. you know, there's no, there weren't kind of great, sort of recordable symposiums if you if you'd had a microphone in our house you wouldn't i don't think you would really ever have <laughs> had us talking for more than about four minutes about coming uh about how we wrote or how you know how i write how he wrote and so on. um sure no i mean it's just you know but but by the same token you know i lived in, i grew up in a house that was full of stories stories were the currency that we had you know i, I have three older half brothers they would show up and they, you know what have you been doing well this you know this funny thing happened you know Everything. If I came back from school, my dad came back from a walk. You know, he got a uh, an acorn dropped on his head by a squirrel. You know, for him, that's already a ten minute story. It's going to make you laugh more than you can imagine. <laughs> you know, so um, so everything I knew was narrative. Um, and there's you know there's any number of ways in the universe that you can you can learn to deploy that and you know and find an outlet for it. But I, in the end, I ended up on the most direct one. Sure. Well, you, you talked about process, uh, just then, and I'm curious, what is your process? I mean, when, when you are working on, uh, a novel, are you, um, are you writing kind of, um, just kind of diving into the narrative? I mean, you talked about this initial writing session when you started writing the price you pay, or, um, are you doing a lot of plotting beforehand? I do both. Uh, so, I mean, uh, let's see, I mean, no, with Nomon specifically, which is, you know, a long time ago now for me, but it's still my most recent Nick Harkaway novel with that. I was, I did, I had an idea of how it would work. I knew what the, what the, the nature of the story was and how it ultimately came out. Um, you know, I, I, I knew what I wanted it to be, but I didn't have a detailed plan and that, either cost me or was the making of it. I dived in and I thought I was going to be writing a short book. I really thought I was writing a kind of <laughs> Kurt Vonnegut, you know, kind of thing. And within three months, I was up to my eyeballs in uh, appallingly complex interactions between narrative storylines and so on. Now, could I have plotted that out? I'm not sure. I don't know if I could ever have done that interweaving without writing the book. Uh, you know, but, but I learned a bunch of stuff about how to approach that. So I, you know, from oddly from writing a book that was almost completely nonlinear and having to learn to write from the back to the front and Mm -hmm. having to interweave and carry so much stuff in your head and then discovering that you can't carry that many interactions in your head all the time until no one, I carried every single book, the whole of it in my head all the time. After that, I realized you don't have to do that. And indeed, in many cases, you can't do that. You you have your plan, you have your skeleton, you focus on given interactions, and then you knit it together. Um, you know, all kinds of things changed for me writing that book because I really pushed the envelope on what I was capable of doing. Um, and so, I mean, so my process is really kind of actually 
quite ordinary. I always feel guilty answering this question. So you know, <laughs> in, a, in a kind of ordinary day-to-day sense, I come upstairs to my office. I have an office at the top of the house. After I've taken the kids to school, I sit down, I start writing. I go, you know, at lunchtime, I go down, need some food. I come back and do another couple of hours, come up, you know, sign off uh, and then uh, go and get the kids, bring them back, do homework, do dinner, kind of fall over on my face, you know, and now we have a dog. So I fit the dog into that too. Um, you know, and that means, sometimes that means standing in front of a whiteboard, drawing spider diagrams and lines in the air. Sometimes it means talking to myself in a loud voice and yelling at the corner. Sometimes it means sitting down in front of the computer and writing a scene that's way out of order, you know, way from in the middle, from the end, you know, or it means kind of just sitting down and, and writing something that might feel like it's from a different book, except somehow it's from this one. And what's, what am I doing here? It's very much a question of following where the story leads, where, where your instinct is taking you. And sometimes your instinct takes you in the wrong direction and you kind of go, no, 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 that's that's a completely other concern that you have. You want to talk about that, we'll do that in another book. So you've got to turn it around, turn that off. You know, but actually when you, I guess when you cauterize one of those wrong avenues, very often a whole bunch of things fall into place in the rest of the story. And you're kind of like, well, I need to take that out as well. I need to take that out as well. But then, ooh, suddenly, look, look, now I have a linear kind of narrative again. <laughs> right. Um, uh, I mean, so I went from Nomon to the first Jack Price, which is a completely linear narrative. I mean, it's literally this guy, you know, kind of gets the news that he's being hunted and then he decides to hunt everybody back. And then, you know, you have a sequence of events and he survives and that's it. Bang. There's there's really no, you know, there's there's an increase in tension. There's a, you know, whatever, but there's no flashback. There's no kind of uh, side avenues, really. There's just what there is. Um you know, and then with Seven Demons, it's a little more convoluted. There's layers and uh, above and below because you've got seven characters, you know, which you've got to deal with. Um, they all, you know, and each of the demons has has moods, needs, you know, concerns, whatever. Um, so you've got more going on, but the process remains the same. I plan sometimes. I don't plan other times. Gotcha. I'm I'm curious, given your writing success to date, what, what writing advice would you offer for those who are working on their own stories or novels? I mean, there's a whole raft of pieces of advice <laughs> you can give people for, for different specific situations. I mean, the- At Grand Canyon University, we believe in equal opportunity and the American dream starts with purpose. Whether your pursuit involves a bachelor's, master's, or doctoral degree, GCU's learning environments are designed for supportive networking and collaboration. With over 330 academic programs, GCU provides a path to help you fulfill your dreams. The pursuit to serve others is yours. Find your purpose at GCU. Private. Christian. Affordable. Visit gcu.edu. The first one is show up. You know, the weird thing is if you show up and you write, um you know, day by day, you end up with a novel. I did uh, NaNoWriMo last year and I loved it. You know, that was great because then you show up, you know, you've got to come up with 55,000 words. And there's a consequence of that, right? As soon as you know that you've got to write a large amount of stuff in a short period of time, you get into Walter B. Gibson mode. And for me, there's several things that happen there. And the first and most important is that you pick the kind of story you're going to tell because you cannot tell a convoluted roller coaster switchback sidewinder twisty story corkscrew story in that period of time at that speed you you won't do it you know uh what you can have deceptions and reveals but you've got to have a linear story you've got to have something like the unity of time and place one character doing one thing in the course of one in in, in the pursuit of one goal if you've got something like that 
you know, it doesn't matter. It can be a very long time period. You can tell it over a lifetime or over seven lifetimes. That's fine. But, you know, you've got to have that kind of sense of direction and certainty about where you're going. Um, so that's always interesting. I, you know, and then there's kind of different, different things. Like I like to take very often the core mood of a novel, not necessarily the core plot, but the notion, the voice of a thing that I'm writing will be summed up by something that I write quite early on. And I like to make sure I've got a print out of that and I tack it up somewhere I can see it. So that when I have, when I think to myself, oh, geez, I don't know if I can write this. I don't know what I'm doing. I don't know what this is supposed to feel like. This whole scene feels wrong. Where, where am I going? What's happening? And by the way, that's like once a day. Um, <laughs> you know, I, I, I can look at that thing and go, ah, okay, here is my pole star. Here is my compass, right? This tells me the direction I'm going. Everything I need to know about the story is in that four inch paragraph. If it's not, if it isn't consonant with that, it's the wrong book. That's great. Well, what novels or nonfiction books have you read recently that you enjoyed? Uh, I am a terrible human being right now because I have very little time to read. I've had, it's interesting. I don't know if you had this experience, but I I had this notion at the beginning of the pandemic that I would catch up on my reading. (laughs) I'm not sure I've ever been busier. Um, And I'm kind of out of the habit. I'm trying to learn Irish. Um, So what have I been reading? So I have, um, by my bed, I have Sarah Gailey's The Echo Wife. Uh, which I literally just dipped into and, and, you know, kind of like, they are amazing. It's a great book. Um, what else have I got going on? Um, uh, I have Carlo Rovelli's book. Uh, there are places in the world where kindness is more important than, uh, kindness is more important than rules or something. I can't remember. Kindness is more important than truth. I'm not sure. Right. Um, um, uh, so that's nonfiction. He's fascinating as a writer. I mean, he just, he writes beautifully about incredibly difficult ideas in physics. And then he writes about Virgil, you know, and you're just kind of, okay, <laughs> good. You can do those two. That's great. Um, he's, he's, I think he's really interesting. Um, and then I was reading a book called Terran Noir, which is a collection of, of uh, noir stories, as you might imagine, set in Terran. Um, you know, but I'm, I'm constantly, I just agglomerate uh, books that I mean to read. So like, I'm literally, I'm sitting at my desk. What have I got here? Uh, well, of course I'm surrounded by German editions of the first Jack Price novel, but, um, but if I wander kind of slightly further, I will just, there is a stack of books. Um, (laughs) there's a, there's a book on, um, uh, British boffins in the second world war deception operations. There's another one on, uh, Johann Sebastian Bach. There's, there's somewhere there's somewhere in my room there is always a copy of uh, Tan Tuan Eng's uh, Garden of Evening Mists because I cannot resist that book. Um, you know, there's there's a stack of Octavia Butler's over there. I mean, everything. You know, I'm I'm constantly either constantly reading or constantly torturing myself with the idea that I ought to be reading something. Uh, <laughs> That's great. Know. Well, where can people find you online if they want to learn more about you and your novels? Ah, where can you find me? Well, okay sporadically these days you can find me on twitter i I find social media increasingly difficult but i am still on twitter because i i like some kind of connection with the wider world um uh otherwise uh let's see i mean i i I just started an instagram account for my dog because she is um extremely existential she has a very worried look, which I take to be a kind of French existentialist horror about the universe. So there is a dog versus void Instagram account. So you can also <laughs> find me there. Um, 
But I mean, so I have a website, nickarkaway.com, which I'm shamefully lousy at updating, but there is a, there is a web form there for getting in touch with me as well. Um, But in general, I'm just around. I'm not that hard to find. Right. Right. Well, again, we've been speaking with Nick Harkaway, author of Seven Demons, a novel that is being published under the pseudonym Aiden Truen. The book is on sale now, so go buy a copy. And Nick, thanks for doing this interview. Thank you. That was great. Now, stay tuned for a brief excerpt from the audiobook of the novel Seven Demons, available wherever audiobooks are sold. Doc, who is my not-girlfriend and a global science felon, has a dog. The dog is called Tycho. And looking at Tycho, you would not think he was named for the guy who lost the middle part of his nose in a duel with swords. Tycho is a Saluki. And that is a tall, skinny, expensive dog, like if Gautier styled a greyhound for Miley Cyrus. Looking at Tycho, you would assume he was gentle and shy, and that is true insofar as it is mostly true and things that are mostly true are not true at all. Tycho is gentle and shy, but he is also a dog, and he will therefore attempt fornication with anything at all. The animal has no discretion and no sense of boundaries. Beneath the elegant exterior of a dog bred for generations by emirs and sheikhs, there lurks the heart of a dissolute sex pest, and despite what is undeniable, that Tycho is a sight hound and can see the hairs on a gnat's ass at a hundred paces, it is clear that love, or at least savage and inappropriate lust, is blind. If he thinks an object is even moderately suited to receiving his organ, he will absolutely positively fuck it until one or the other of them is incapable. I have seen Tycho initiate coitus with a salt-baked sea bass, and that will be in my head forever. For ever. It is, therefore, something of a surprise that Tycho recently refused his affections to the lady dog belonging to a rich old Dutch party called Mrs. Van Der Zee. But that is what he did, and there is no accounting for taste. Looking at Mrs. Van Der Zee's dog, I would have said there was nothing to object to. Certainly, Marta, this being the name of the lady dog, is a more obvious friend with benefits than two kilos of Michelin-starred fish on a bed of shaved black radish. But I am not judgy. Tycho and Marta did not make it, and that is that, but it is not that for Mrs. Van Der Zee. Mrs. Van Der Zee takes a dim view. She sees the absence of dog fornication as a slight upon Marta, and any slight upon Marta is a slight upon Mrs. Van Der Zee, and one does not slight Mrs. Van Der Zee. As a result of the non-fucking by Tycho of Marta, there had to be an owner-to-owner meeting in a truth and reconciliation mode, at which I was present purely as mediator, and it was not a good meeting at all. Mrs. Van Der Zee lives in a big place by the sea, and it has gardens and tennis courts and two heated pools and thousands and thousands of deluxe ultra-premium rare tulips. In fact, the whole place smells of sickly tulip stink, because Mrs. Van Der Zee chooses to wear a customised perfume made by a guy named Jort. Jort is present at this exciting gathering in a sort of Roman short-shorts playsuit, He is from Den Haag and has no body hair whatsoever, and I'm fairly sure Mrs. Van Der Zee keeps him as some sort of quasi-sexual pet. I do not want to know what she does with him, and I do not think Jort wishes to talk about it. He works with both ancient wisdom and sophisticated modern techniques to create a unique signature scent experience using whatever you give him. 
which in this case, of course, is ultra-premium deluxe rare tulips. I am not a perfume guy, but when I was the cardinal of coffee, I developed a sensitive nose, because if you cannot tell when someone is trying to sell you basic sawdust arabica for Hacienda La Esmeralda, you will get fucked in the civet hole. And this perfume smelled like someone had done that with violet to a perfectly innocent vetiver and then shaken the whole thing with turpentine. It is dis-fucking gusting and it is all over everything in the house. And when she shakes your hand, it goes on you like she's a plague vector and it will not come off your clothes. So I may not have been entirely at the top of my game during this encounter and it did not go ideally well. Over the salad course, by way of peacemaking, Doc ventured the opinion that the absence of sex between the canine companions may be owed to the fact that their antibodies were not sufficiently complementary, which seems like a good no-fault explanation to me. But Mrs. Vanderzee recorded, around a mouthful of Lolo Rosso, the alternative view that Tycho is a hate-filled canine communist. Doc said he was not hate-filled, nor indeed did he, being a dog, possess the necessary cognitive architecture to form political opinions of this kind, and Mrs. Vanderzee audibly concluded that Doc was one of those. When Doc requested clarification of what sort of those this might be, I was unable to prevent Mrs. Vanderzee from explaining that Doc, as evidenced by her lack of belief in dog politics, was a doino or dog owner in name only, or she would know that our furry friends understand more than we think. Doc noted that she might could arrange for Mrs. Vanderzee and her damn dog both to get a virulent and fast-progressing hemorrhagic fever. And I said shush, because that is a thing that Doc has done in her life. An ixnay on the lowing bay, our yay, overkay. And Doc said I should tixay, titay, putay, imay, sassay. And it was at this tense moment that Tycho chose to initiate vigorous and vocal sex with a Semper Augustus. A Semper Augustus is a kind of tulip whose petals look like marbled steak and which costs $10,000 a bulb. Also, when a Saluki fucks one, it makes a noise like cleaning a window with a squeegee. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.